Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting The Motley Fool and Industry Focus. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool. You get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, January 18th, and we're talking about some recent results from Netflix and some sad news from Snap. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com's Evan New. Evan, what's going on? It's cold. It's snowing in Denver, so it's going to be a cold weekend. That sounds like my kind of conditions, Evan. You know, I'm going to be going snowboarding this weekend, and I would love to have some nice, fresh snow to be on. I think we're going to have to settle for a day or two old snow, though, where I'm going. Well, I'm from Texas. I'm not used to all this white (laughs) stuff. Colorado might have been a curious choice for you, then. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, more the same over here. I think we might be getting a little bit of a wintry mix. But, um, yeah, nice to know that we're dealing with the same conditions, even though we're miles and miles apart, Evan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have quite a bit of news to cover on today's show. There's a lot going on in tech this week. We had the beginning of earnings season which I think you know, everyone gets really excited about. Nice to get those fresh results from companies that they follow. And then we also have some updates before companies start reporting, and, and that's what we're going to be focusing on with Snap. Let's kick things off talking about Netflix and some of the results they posted. I mean, this is a company that a ton of fools follow um, and are always eagerly awaiting updates on. It's a very polarizing company, and stock is one of the most volatile earnings movers in general. So it's it's always a fun one to watch. But the um, the results were kind of mixed overall. The revenue came in at like four point one nine billion. Uh, Mark was expecting a four point two one, so just like a tiny miss there. Uh, the good news is earnings per share came in at thirty cents versus the twenty four cent consensus. So they actually were able to beat on the bottom line despite a slight miss up top. But I think one of the big things this this quarter is that they recorded. Uh, a record number of sub- subscriber growth to- uh, globally. They added 8.8 million um, total members, of which 1.5 million was in the U.S. Uh, and 7.3 million internationally. So that's a huge growth number outside of the U.S. that they're adding a ton of members. Uh, now, worldwide total memberships are around 139 million. And with this business, I think there's always been a focus on, okay, you know, what does the top line look like and what does the bottom line look like? But so much of the growth story for them is what's going on with the subscribers. And for them to be putting up a big number like that, and I think for them also to be forecasting they'll be putting up another pretty big number next quarter, is super encouraging, especially when you have the news earlier in the week that they're going to be raising prices, because those are two really easy levers for them to continue to you know raise revenue down the road. Right. So that forecast, they're, they're expected at 8.9 million global net additions in the first quarter. So that's, like you mentioned, another... You know, back-to-back, you know, record of, of membership additions. So I think that's pretty encouraging. Even though their revenue forecast for the first quarter also came in a little bit light relative to expectations, they're expecting about 4.5 billion in revenue, whereas analysts were at 4.6. So again, kind of a, a minor shortfall there. But I'm still really encouraged by these strong membership numbers. Yeah, I think that long term, you have to love that those numbers are going in the right direction. At a certain point, I think the other numbers catch up. You know, if you're really sweating the fact that Netflix missed by 0.02 billion on their top line, I think you're not really focusing on the right part of the narrative for this company. Right, exactly. And that's kind of been the long-term story. You know, they keep just keep on investing heavily into this original content and that really continues to drive this membership growth. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, with this price increase, you know, they're they're really milking more out of all of their members and that's going to help drive some growth too even 
on top of you know this membership growth because these price increases are effective for um, you know across, you know for a lot of markets they're rolling out these increases and then at the same time we had talked about this before you know them cutting out mobile in-app subscriptions you know which is a blow to you know companies like Apple or Google and you know that's going to help them boost their margin between cutting costs on distribution increasing top you know upfront pricing and, and you know the the mobile side of it really affects the new and returning customers. So knowing that they're still able to really, be, you know, add members that are coming in, new members or returning customers, none of which will be subject to those you know, mobile platform fees if they're signing up through mobile platforms. Um, a lot of things to like here. I think if you're looking out beyond the next quarter, and you know that's what we were talking about with the member stuff, and start looking at what 2019 and 2020 look like for this company, you know they've benefited for a very long time. Uh, by being one of the first and really only streaming companies, a lot of the competition has started to catch up a little bit. Uh, I think some of that competition is really going to intensify as we get into late 2019 and start looking at 2020, because we're going to see a lot of the Disney stuff roll off of their catalog, and we're going to start to see Disney Plus come out and see what the appetite is there for consumers. Right, and that is something they actually addressed directly in the shareholder letters that you know. A lot of investors and analysts are really focused on this competitive piece of, like, as you mentioned, Disney Plus is a big one. Uh, Disney has a huge content library, and, and they're pulling it all off of Netflix. But you know, Netflix's point was that, you know, first of all, they estimate that at this point they're about 10% of all TV screen time in the U.S., which is kind of a mind-boggling figure that one service grabs that much attention uh, from all of us collectively. But they also note that you know they really compete with all forms of entertainment. It's not just streaming, but they also compete with video games and, and all, all sorts of other stuff. And they even said they're losing out to Fortnite because Fortnite's been so popular lately. Um, but yeah, they I think their kind of point is that, you know, people are focusing too much on other streaming services as, as competition when entertainment is really fragmented. So what they're focusing on is really just delivering a valuable experience to the members that can justify what those members pay each month and potentially price increases going forward. Yeah, and I actually talked about this on a show that will be going up Tuesday uh, with Dan Klein. We were doing kind of a look at what to expect from Disney in 2019 and 2020. And we talked a lot about Disney Plus. And, you know, if you're looking at services that have, you know, a monthly cost of 12 bucks, 10 bucks, you know, Disney said they're going to be pricing below Netflix because of the content library differences. It's pretty easy for consumers to have several of them and kind of look at, okay, I'm willing to have HBO, Netflix, and Disney Plus but I'm going to cut my cable and just pay for internet. I don't know that any of these services are mutually exclusive, but we haven't gotten to the point where a lot of consumers have a lot of these different packages um, from all these different providers. I, I think that in the next year or two, we'll start to see, okay, how many are people willing to kind of navigate between and pay for all at the same time? Yeah, I think that's going to be interesting too because you know there are a ton of services coming out, and you know the appeal of cord cutting has always been, yeah, you get rid of this fifty, sixty, seventy dollar cable bill, and then you pay ten bucks a month or Netflix or whatever it is. But when you start adding three to four to five streaming services between HBO Now, Hulu, Netflix, Disney Plus, whatever Apple does this year, like you basically get right back up to that fifty, sixty dollars a month, uh, which kind of offsets what you're hoping to save. By cutting the cord to begin with. <laughs> yeah, I think that the future of streaming and what <laughs> consumption looks like is really just cable in disguise. You know, it's it's cable in the sense that you have you know various packages that you're looking for, and instead of them being channel packages, they're the service packages. You know, it's you deciding whether you want Netflix and Disney Plus or just Netflix because of the content that's on there. And I think the key is going to be like as long as Netflix can 
you know, they're not exactly mutually exclusive, but there is certainly a limit. Like, no, people aren't going to sign up for 10 different services, right? So I think the key for Netflix is as long as they can always be a constant in that mix, that people always prioritize, okay, Netflix is a given, we want that. And then they go off and choose between the other ones of mix and match, which services appeal to them the most. But as long as Netflix is kind of like the core staple that everyone subscribes to, I think that's you know going to be the key to it as the competition heats up. Yeah, they benefit from the brand name. I think they benefit from being the first mover. It is so closely tied to the streaming phenomenon in general. You know, the the idea that Netflix is the default. I think that helps them out so much. Um, going back to their report for a minute, you know, one of the things that we've watched with this company over time is what does the debt load look like. And I know that management has a slightly different philosophy about debt than maybe some of the other companies that a lot of people follow. Um, it looks like we're going to see more debt coming onto this company's books. Uh, we've certainly seen it in the most recent quarter, and there's no sign that that's slowing down. Right, exactly. They've just been adding so much debt in recent years. Uh, and at this point, it's over $10 billion. They added $4 billion alone in 2018. Um, and that's really hurting some of these other numbers. You know, For example, they expect free cash flow in 2019 to be comparable to 2018, which is to say negative $3 billion, uh, which is not a great number to forecast. But again, it's kind of this long-term investment in the content business. But another kind of interesting thing that happened is they also named a new CFO earlier this month, at the beginning of January, Spence Newman. They hired him away from Activision Blizzard. And you know, the current CFO, or the outgoing CFO has been CFO since 2010. So that's, you know, almost 10 years that he's been leading their finances. And you know, under David Wells, they you know really justified this growing debt load by pointing to their debt to market cap ratio, which I've always thought was a really misguided way to look at it because you know market cap is just what the market's doing at any given time. Whereas your debt is very much you know, a tangible number on your balance sheet that you're paying the set interest expenses. So to tying tying this debt to rate market cap ratio as a way to like justify just this endless amount of debt, I've always thought was kind of a wrong approach. So it, one thing I'm interested to see going forward is if this new CFO changes that strategy or changes that rationale at all. Yeah, I'm reminded a bit of that famous quote, uh, the market can remain irrational far longer than you can remain solvent. And I think why the reason why most people tend to focus on looking at debt relative to cash, maybe a net debt position or net cash position, is because if you're focusing on market cap or share price, um, you know that can fluctuate pretty wildly. Having the cash is the easiest indicator of whether you're going to be able to pay off the debt that you are facing. Right. I mean, if you're if you're using this debt to market cap ratio to justify it, what happens when your market cap drops by 25% over the course of a few months? And Netflix does that all the time because it's so volatile. Then all of a sudden, your rationale is kind of shot. And then at that point, you know, what do you do? And I mean, in, in the letter, they mentioned, you know, we do continue raising debt capital as long as the uh, marginal after-tax cost of debt is lower than the marginal cost of equity. But you know, again, I, I just I think it's kind of a strange approach, whereas they could easily just sell more stock and secondary offerings, which would, you know, might have more, higher cost of equity, but. Would, would, does not have interest expenses associated with it. So, again, it, it's a little too early to know if he's going to change how they approach their capital allocation strategy, but that would be something to keep an eye on. Uh, that minor beef aside, I think looking at the results, where this company is going, uh, I know that the market reaction was pretty light to this. You know, I, I think that they might have even been down a little bit on these results. Uh, I look at this and I see everything that I want to see from this company. They're, they might have missed a little bit on the top line, but everything else is going in the right direction. You want to be adding subscribers, especially knowing that they continue to have a willingness to pay more than what the company is charging. I look at this report, and I'm pretty happy. 
Oh, I agree too. Overall, I'm I'm an investor, and I've been a long term investor, and I think you know the record subscriber numbers, record forecasts on subscriber numbers, uh, those are to me very encouraging. Even though I might disagree with you know some of their debt strategy, but overall, I thought it was a very strong report, and a lot of analysts are still bullish. You know, a lot of price target increases today, and uh, right after the results. All right, Evan, we are going to switch gears and talk Snap on the back half of the show, but before we get over to that discussion. Making the perfect hire can set your team up for success in the new year, but where do you find that person? When it comes to posting your job, go where you have access to an engaged community that people visit every day, LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly, but 9 out of 10 LinkedIn members are open and interested to new opportunities like yours. With most of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. It's no wonder that a hire is made every eight seconds using LinkedIn. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool, and you get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Evan, switching gears and talking about another big story in tech. We got news earlier this week that Snap CFO Tim Stone was going to be leaving the company, and I think this is one of the most dominant headlines that our readers and listeners probably saw this week. It's pretty big news. I mean, uh, they only poached Tim Stone away from Amazon back in May, so it's only been eight months, and they got him with a twenty million dollar pay package. <laughs> so you know he's giving up quite a bit by leaving so soon. Uh, that that compensation package included nineteen million in like standard equity units that vest over time, as well as a, a one million dollar grant that. Invested within six months, I think as of the last form four filing, he still had like two point three million shares. But there's a lot that he's leaving on the table, and kind of, it, it, it's never good news when you're losing two CFOs in under a year. Yeah, he was there to replace Drew Valero, who left the company. Um, and as a reminder for po- for some folks who may not be as familiar with Tim Stone and his pedigree, he spent twenty years at Amazon before coming to Snap. Um, certainly not a guy that needed money. But to see him leave, you know, eighteen million, or uh, I've seen some estimates at sixteen million. He left a lot of money on the table, one way or the other, to leave, which says to me that he was not happy with the situation at this company. Right, exactly. And I mean, we were talking about earlier, but there's a Bloomberg report also that, you know, Stone apparently was interested in being real ambitious and wanted a promotion. He wanted an even a higher pay package, and then he also wanted to be promoted to COO. And then he went behind. Evan Spiegel's back to like talk to the board, which of course Spiegel's part of, uh, and apparently that caused a lot of tension between the two. <laughs> and and that COO role was kind of vacant because Imran Khan, who was the chief strategy officer at the company, uh, and I think was there for several years, left last year to pursue uh, his own opportunities. I think he's working on some e-commerce startup. Um, so he had left for some other opportunities. Stone, it wasn't clear that he was leaving for any reason aside from not necessarily getting along or not necessarily having the same vision as Evan Spiegel. And Spiegel's management has been really kind of called into question a lot lately. I mean, there are reports that the previous CFO, Drew Valero, left in part because Spiegel was so obsessed with making spectacles and the money just... And we've talked about spectacles at length on the show, like how they're they're just seem to be more trouble than they're worth. No one buys them, no one uses them, but Snap keeps putting all this money into developing and marketing and distributing these things. And apparently Spiegel is just so obsessed with this that Valero was really against this wasteful spending on hardware development. But, you know, obviously that, you know, we don't know the exact circumstances around Stone's departure now, but, you know, point being that just 
I don't think Evan Spiegel is a great leader. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people thought Stone was going to be the adult in the room, so to speak. The guy that at least got them on the up and up with their books, maybe got them focused on the right priorities and investing in the right places. For him to be leaving, uh, I think, does say quite a bit about Spiegel. It's also concerning because you look at their management team over the last two years, it's been a mass exodus. You know, <laughs> you look at their current executives and directors page on the company website, only Bobby Murphy and Evan Spiegel, the two co founders, have been in their current positions prior to July 2017. And the company went public in March of that year. That, that really doesn't speak to this is a management team that people want to be a part of and are ready to work for long term. Yeah, exactly. And there's also news this week that broke that apparently their head of HR had left back in November, but it it, ha- it wasn't reported until just now. So, I mean, if you're specifically if you're an investor, the two positions that are pretty important to you are the CFO and the head of investor relations. <laughs> and with with no head of IR and the CFO on his way out, like that's a pretty terrible combination for investors in terms of you know corporate governance, investor transparency, and all these things. And speaking of investor transparency, Stone, to his credit, was the one that implemented financial guidance. So Snap previously did never provide any financial guidance, which kind of left investors in the dark about what's going on, what to expect in the next quarter, on top of not having any votes or any way to actually influence the company. So th- these are just a lot of really negative developments just back to back. If there is a silver lining looking at the Stone news, I think in digging into what his comp package was, we can say that Snap as a company has gotten better at setting up their share vesting schedules. Because one of the big criticisms that we had of this company was when they IPO'd, Evan Spiegel immediately received what, like a $650 million share grant? Roughly, yeah. yeah that as a bonus for taking the company public, which, and then he had, he had sold like two or $300 million in stock in the IPO. And then they just gave him another <laughs> six or seven hundred million just for taking the company public. But you know, certainly he's looking to enrich himself, but he might not be as interested in enriching <laughs> yeah. and, other people. And that wound up being a very costly decision for them because they had to realize all of that grant immediately. It was such a large grant, they didn't have it vest over time, so it hit their books all at once. Uh, with this grant that we saw with uh, Stone, I think it was in equal installments over 48 months or something like that. So so yeah. clearly, they're thinking a little bit more long-term with how they're giving executives their shares over at Snap. Yeah, that one was definitely much more traditional in a way the vesting schedule is structured. In the flurry of the news around this company, what might have gotten lost a little bit is they're going to be reporting earnings in early February, and they did issue a statement around what to expect. They said that they'll be reporting results that are, quote, slightly favorable uh, to the top end of the previously reported quarterly guidance ranges. Um, if you want to go back and look at what those numbers are, company guided for $355 million uh, to $380 million in revenue and adjusted losses of somewhere between $75 and $100 million. Um, near the top end of that guidance, that's about 30% year-over-year growth. Evan, this is a deceleration from what we've seen from this company over the last couple quarters. Right. I mean, when they they went public so early in their life that they're, they're, they're able to put up these really strong growth numbers, but they're coming off of a really small base. So it's kind of misleading how impressive that is. But now that we're seeing growth decelerate as you know, they're trying to ramp this ad business and they keep struggling and you know, they've been trying to automate it to kind of scale it up. But I mean, they're making some progress, but there's no, there's no question that the, the business is slowing down a little bit in terms of growth. Yeah. And they didn't provide any specific DAU guidance 
in that quarter before, uh, but they did say that they expected to lose users sequentially from Q3. So, for me, one of the things that I'm most interested in with this upcoming report is, okay, they're hitting near the top end of what they were expecting in revenue. Um, They'd said that they were expecting to lose users. Is that what's happening? And if that's happening, where's the revenue growth coming from? Where's where's the outsized impact coming from? Is it that they're really putting out more impressions, they're creating more ad opportunities than they thought they were going to? Is it that prices for ads are rebounding? Because those are kind of the two big dynamics for an ad-based business. Right. I mean, I, I, obviously, user metrics will be important, as always, for any social media company. Uh, and like you mentioned, pricing. But you know, I, I always like to look at their cost structure. We've also talked about this a lot over you know, over the years that we've been covering this company, but I, I still just think their cost structure is not very sustainable. So looking at hosting costs per member, um, per user, or rather, and comparing that to the average revenue per user, and just seeing if they're making any progress with scaling, because the way they have the company set up, it's just so difficult to actually scale, which is what most people tend to like about tech companies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the spreading the fixed costs out over more and more users it is what makes the numbers work for so many of these companies. When you have variable costs tied to usage, you just can't do that. And I think on the on the ad side, there has been a lot of anecdotal reports about just the kind of quality of the ads on the platform just deteriorating, continuing to get worse and worse, which doesn't really give you a lot of confidence. You know, if they're not attracting quality advertisers. Um, that's also something to kind of be on the lookout for. Yeah, I've joked with you in the past that I've gotten some very untargeted <laughs> ads uh, on Snap, uh, ads that are not meant for a you know 28 year old man, but maybe a woman, <laughs> uh, which is you know something that speaks to a lot of the results that we see in the digital marketing space, where I, I, Jason Moser has talked about this on Market Foolery, but I believe it was a Cowan research study uh, they put out to a bunch of ad buyers and said. Um, if you could choose between putting all of your clients' ad budgets between Instagram stories or Snap stories, where are you spending your money? And 100% of respondents said Instagram stories. That <laughs> says all you need to say about where Snap stands in ad budgets. And when you're going up against a Goliath like that, it's just really hard to make up ground. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised by that 100% figure at all. <laughs> Um, well, we might briefly follow up on the results uh, if there's anything surprising in there, but I think it's always good to give people a couple of different things to look at as a company's reporting. Um, anything else before we wrap up here, Evan? One other thing that happened during the week is they, they're le- also losing their head of HR, Jason Halbert. <laughs> so he, he's always been a very controversial head of HR. Wasn't really qualified since he had no prior experience in HR, but he's just friends with Evan Spiegel. And you know, there are some previous reports about how bizarre and borderline inappropriate kind of stuff that this guy would say to employees and that's coming from your hr chief that's kind of a weird match but i'm not going to get into it since this is a family friendly show yes (laughs) yes uh i appreciate your discretion evan for folks that are interested you know you can you can do a little searching and maybe find it um this is all to say you know a lot of the stuff that we originally saw as red flags this company still exists um and we haven't seen a willingness to really address them. You know, I think if Evan Spiegel was willing to say, you know what, I am not the guy. I am, I am not the leader. I'm a product person, but I don't have the ability to manage this company that, you know, at a time was worth almost $30 billion. Um, and he brought in a good management team and surrounded himself with people that were going to challenge him, make the company better. Uh, that might be something that a lot of people could get behind. I don't think that's what we've seen. Yeah, and it's crazy the fact that they were even worth thirty billion at one point, or anywhere close to that. 
And even today, they're worth something like seven or eight billion, which I still feel like is overvalued for what we've seen of this company. Yeah, I think that they're going to be somewhere in what, like one point one billion in trailing sales, maybe one point two billion in trailing sales after this most recent report. So you know that still puts them at a pretty hefty sales multiple for a company that shows no signs of profitability anytime soon and is you know losing members. Yeah, and they can't scale. Their management's in disarray. I mean, all sorts of problems. But they're still, like you said, they're still trading at pretty, pretty nice premiums. But so I think there's a pretty disconnect there. But you know, it's hard. I don't, I don't know where the downside is. Yeah, me neither. It, it, I don't feel like it's. I feel like the stock's still overvalued, even at like five or six bucks. Yeah, um, we'll just have to see. I don't think either you or me are going to be the one fighting to catch a falling knife with this company. That said, I think that it does provide a lot of really good lessons to investors, and I think that's why we've spent so much time on it. Even though it's a company that we're both bearish on, you know, we talk so much about the corporate governance issues. We talk about the course, the cost structure issues. You know, where they stand in the digital ad landscape, and this is a company that I think a lot of people might have. Bought uh, as their first stock. You know, it's it's a pretty widely held company. If you look at a lot of Robinhood Holdings, which is a proxy for you know what millennials are investing in, and uh, you know, I hope that if nothing else, it provided a lot of good lessons to people uh, because it, it might just be that it might be the price of an education. What's happened, you know, with Snapstock? I think that's a good point too because you know, you're absolutely right. Like the way that they've done a lot of things, love it or hate it, it's very unique. Um, and different, and to see how these decisions play out over time is definitely something uh, where investors can learn. You know, like the no votings for public investors, this cloud storage hosting strategy that we've talked about. You know, there's a lot of things that they've done that are really kind of unique and just different. And it wasn't clear at the time initially if it's going to be a good or a bad thing. Obviously, no voting is a bad thing, <laughs> but you know, to your point, just I, I agree that there's a lot of interesting things that have played out that you know have a lot of valuable lessons for investors. And if there's anything worth checking in on after we see results, we'll be happy to do that. Uh, Evan, thanks for hopping on the show. Thanks for having me. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. You can also catch all the videos from this podcast over on YouTube. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!